It was the fall of 2001, and I was on a bus in, headed to Minneapolis, um, downtown Minneapolis. I worked at Arthur Anderson, an accounting firm, and I was pretty new into my career. I had graduated from UNI a couple years earlier, and an otherwise normal day. Got off the bus stop, said goodbye to the friends I was getting to know on the bus, went up to the 35th floor of our tower there by Nicolette Avenue, and went to work for about an hour before I saw and heard a flurry of people talking, whispering, congregating out at the corner of my eye, mass of people huddled around a flat screen or TV, I guess, that we had in the lobby area of the firm, and they were all watching the TV. And as they were watching an image of a building, massive building, this is New York City, one of the towers, smoke coming out of it, live video footage, another plane comes in and nails the building, and everyone's just, just gasps, and people are crying trying to figure out what's going on, it's breaking news, and it's just, it's pandemonium in downtown Minneapolis in most every city in the U.S. And that turn day, that day I'll never forget, um, trying to get home, um, I was a little bit fortunate to have ridden the bus because of the HOV lanes providing, uh, it, was a, it was a parking lot downtown, the, the all the roads were parking lot because everyone was trying to flee downtown Minneapolis because there was a fear of this terrorist attack. How broad was it? It was September 11th. For those that are younger and may not have put this together, like a 911 emergency call, this was a very strategic, even the choice of the date was targeted for on September 11th, 911 at 9-11, all this was supposed to happen, a.m. Eastern time. And it, and it did. There were, it's a coordinated attack of terrorism, 19 involved in the actual carrying out on the planes, many more involved in an intentional, um, intentional act of evil, horrific evil to destroy and divide and make a point. In fact, so, so there were four commercial airliners filled with humans traveling for pleasure to visit family to uh, travel work-related, all kinds of, and, and all their plans turned into a nightmare um, that morning. It's hard to imagine a, a belief system that encouraged people and encourages that militant Islam, uh, you know, and it's not the first religion that encourages an act of death, an act of suicide, um, to, to carry out, to create, to, to provide honor. Um, 3,000 people, roughly, were killed in the attack on the, the Twin Towers in New York City on 9-11. This is the type of thing, we, when we think of evil, it's, it's out there. It's evil. We think of Twin Towers going down 9-11. We might think of genocide. I did a little research these numbers are staggering. Before I talk about millions, just entertain me for a second. If you were to make, 
$2,800 per day, you'd get to $1 million in a full year. So $2,800 for 365 days every day, you're getting paid $2,800. It would take you a full year to make a million. That's about, so about the same amount of people died on that one day, that act of terrorism. So now that's how, that's how big a million is. Another way to say it is, you think about, doesn't, you know, it takes 10 minutes or something, 10, 12 minutes to walk a mile. It's not that, not that far. You could pick up a mile pretty fast just going shopping. So one million miles would be the same as circling the earth, the entirety of the earth 40 times, four zero times would be one million miles. So there's a big difference a million's a big number, okay? The Holocaust, when you talk genocide, and I'll get into war in a moment, but genocide is death because of who you are, your tribe. Like, you didn't do anything. It's just the color of your skin or the tribe, the people group that you belong to. You maybe have become a victim when we talk about genocide. The Holocaust, Hitler, Nazi Germany, sought to exterminate the Jews. They were the target. From 1941 to 1945, 7 million, which represented about two-thirds of the Jews in Europe at the time, were exterminated. And on top of that, there was a campaign, and this I think is maybe underplayed, the Poles, people from Poland, 3 million Polish Gentiles, so non-Jews, were exterminated as well. 3 million. Um, we, there's a lot of Ukraine's in the news um, for a lot of sad reasons. Russia. This isn't the first time Russia's been very selfish and self-serving in their interest towards Ukraine. Um, I missed this in, in, in history at Garner Hayfield High School in, in, in Iowa back in the 90s. Um, but Holodomir, I may be mispronouncing it, was from 1932 to 1933. This is forced famine that occurred from Stalin's Russia. 7.5 million Ukrainians died because uh, so the Soviet Union refused to allow food into the country. It was a forced famine, massive wipeout of Ukrainians. Ukraine is a very fertile, they've got oil, they've got grain, heavily producing, productive country. Um, and Soviet wanted control, uh, Soviet Union wanted control of it at the time. 7.5 million wiped out. A more recent one, um, Rosie mentioned this to me last night. She was talking about, uh, they're studying history, and she asked, take a guess at how many died. Um, we had seen a movie about this in Rwanda in the 90s. Now, I was in Uganda for a missions trip in 1998, and I ran into some, some, some soldiers that were from Rwanda, some people that were fleeing the situation, but in 1994 in Rwanda, it was nearly one million um, Tutsis were killed by the Hutus. So that's like civil, civil war. People, we're still talking about genocide. That's sad. So that's, that happened in like the world we live in today. To me, it doesn't feel like that long ago. I suppose if you're in high school now, maybe you look at me and think I'm old, and perhaps in some respects I am. But um, for me, it feels like yesterday. This is the world we live in, and we see it going on in 
the Ukraine today. Um, hor horrific news. Brutality of war. The U.S. Civil War, about 750,000 um, soldiers were killed. And we're talking a lot of family relationships torn apart. So that's less than a million. World War II, this number is staggering. Civilians and military, World War II wiped out 70 million. 70 million people off the face of the earth. Um, the brutality of war. So we've got terrorism. We've got genocide. We have brutality of war. We have political evil. Listen to this. This one's equally staggering to me. And I somehow missed this one as well in my history days. This is 1950. So again, after World War II, this is um, Mao Zedong, the, the leader of China. This was part of China's great leap forward. What a pitch. It was a plan to form a communist society. Land and businesses were seized, split up, so the idea of private enterprise was no more. They were taken, and there, there were, land was taken and given, to, given away to people. It was parceled out and given to those um, that were poor, like it was, it was equality in action, and it sounded good. Private farming and enterprise were prohibited. The government seized unfair amounts of grain, and apparently there was a lot of lying and corruption going on in the, that control structure over who got what. There was a lot scraped off the top for those in the seats of power. So this great leap forward for the greater good in the course of about five years, and the numbers are debatable, but historians estimate between 30 and 55 million dead from the ensuing famine, from the Great Leap Forward. So there's political evil. Evil. Little things. There's torture to animals. You see it. I was, we lived in Colorado before, um, as a, a, a nine-year stint or something. Rosie and I, we're, we're from Iowa. We were in, in Colorado after Minneapolis for a little while. I'm on a run in the morning. I see these eight or nine-year-old boys by this pond. The trail went by. And there's an item of great interest, and I saw it as well. There was this very large western red-painted turtle. And I grew up, we, we have those here in, in the Midwest. They're beautiful. They have a, well, like a red-painted underbelly on the shell. It's like a work of art. It's God's handprint on nature. And sometimes you find a shell, and it's pretty amazing. Like, um, it's beautiful shell with no turtle. It's sad, but that, you know, um, it's, it's, it's like its own work of art. These boys were kind of chasing it and playing with it, and um, I didn't think much of it. I had finished my route, and they were, um, I saw it uh, tossing, getting tossed through the air, and it had a screwdriver through its back. One of the boys had um, thought it would be fun to apparently show off. These are little boys and had apparently jammed a screwdriver through the, through the turtle's shell. And uh, it broke me down. And I, I got on their case. I'm there talking to them. And um, there were some people gathering. And I was, I was telling them, what do, you, what do you boys plan to do with this turtle now? Like, are you going to take this home and take care of it? I, want, I think you guys, I was talking with one, like, you need to take this home to your parents. And um, <laughs> I was just blown away. Like, just kind of brought me to the, that, that sense of, the, the defeat and pain of evil was very real and present in, in these young, kind of like Lord of the Flies scene. In the Bible, we read about 
God, God commanded, hey, we're not, do not do what you, the, the neighboring society around you does. Do not give your baby, there was, Molech was a demon god. They had Molech temples, apparently. And it was a thing to give your children, your daughters up to serve as prostitutes in the temple serving Molech. So men would come and pay money in this evil society. This is, this is not the Israelites. God was calling them to not be like that. But the evil of that, and, and, and Moloch also apparently, this demon god, demanded, and it was a common ritual, not just for children to be given over, to be abused for their life, to have their, their personhood taken from them, for that to have been something the parents did, to gain status in society, favor, perhaps to impress neighbors and friends. You can only imagine what um, benefits came with that type of evil. Um, but the babies would be also a sacrifice. They'd be burned um, as, a, as a temple offering. And it's talked about this in 2 Kings 23. So God gave it as a command, do not do this. We see this sometimes. You hear about abuse within a family, abuse within relationships. Two people that vowed to love and care for each other have now turned. There's something fundamentally wrong See it sometimes and hear about it, bullying among friends, between friends at school. Adults' version of bullying might be backstabbing, being two-faced, saying one thing to one friend and then saying another, playing, playing both sides. It's just nasty. And so often we think of sin and evil, and it's something that's out there. It's the Hitler. It's the, all these things I've mentioned. got a warning for us. We can tend towards hearing of this gross evil and we distance ourselves from it. We think that like there's us and then this horrible problem of evil. Our sin is just as bad. Um, we have to embrace this. We're really blind. I, I, got, I got a book from my, <laughs> my mother-in-law is a wonderful person, Rosie's mom, Cheryl. She sent me a book on holiness for my birthday. So I don't know how to take that, right? Um, like, well, you know, chapter, the first several chapters are talking about the doctrine of sin. Like, okay, but it's, it's rich. And so I want to give some credit to J.C. Ryle. He says this about the fact that we're blind to how much sin is in us too. That very evil is in and part of us part of our makeup, part of what we do, so much so that we're just blind. He says, the very animals whose smell is most offensive to us have no idea that they are offensive and are not offensive to one another. Think of, think of pigs rooting around in their own manure and poo and eating slop and squealing when they get, you know, if you've heard a pig squeal, they're butting their way in, the, me first, me first. It's kind of disgusting. They're kind of just selfish, stinky creatures, right? And man, fallen man, I believe, can have no just 
idea what a vile thing sin is in the sight of that God whose handiwork is absolutely perfect. Perfect, whether we look through the telescope or microscope. Perfect in the formation of a mighty planet like Jupiter with its satellites keeping time to a second as it rolls around the sun. This God that is perfect in formation of the smallest insect that crawls over a foot of ground. It's all beautiful and made right. The design is perfect and flawless. And that God looks down on us as grasshoppers. And does he not, how can he not see us in our stench as we look at pigs and kind of laugh? They're just blind to their stench. Another way we are blind, how are we possibly this blind to sin? It does hurt and we're good at casting and shifting that blame onto some others. The problem is outside of us. Well, sin has been disguised. There's a great deceiver. He prowls like a roaring lion, seeking to devour. He delivers poison candy. It looks good. The apple, no doubt, to Adam and Eve, looked delicious and beautiful. And when he presented it, I'm sure he wasn't in a horrifying Halloween-like costume and stench and worms crawling out of his ears and mouth, which would have been more appropriate for where and who he is, where he's from and who he is. I'm sure he looked enticing as well and innocent and beautiful. Proverbs 5 talks about sin in this way. It's dripping honey and smooth like oil, but in the end it's as bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. J.C. Ryle says it this way, the temptation to sin will rarely present itself to us in its true colors, saying, I am your deadly enemy, and I want to ruin you forever in hell. No, sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss. The forbidden fruit seemed good and desirable to Eve, yet it cast her out of Eden. Sin rarely seems like sin at first. So we're blind, and we have a problem. We tolerate sin. When we tolerate sin, it's a cold, wet blanket to the fire of the Holy Spirit, and the revival love for others, and power to change that he brings. There's unrepented sin in our inner thoughts about others, our circumstances. It's like damp mold, rotting the bones of our house and bringing out hidden toxicity. That complaint you have in your mind, even unvoiced, God knows it, God hears it, and it's disgusting. It is not innocent. It's a complaint. What is a complaint? A grumble? A, a sense that you wish things were different? You might whisper darn under your breath instead of yell something different and more offensive. But is it not very similar underneath? It's a complaint against God and what he's planned for you in that moment in that uh, situation where you can't find what you're looking for and you rage. It's a fist raised against a good God who has planned that moment for you. And this rebellion is significant. 
Proverbs 14.30 says, A sound heart or a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy or jealousy makes the bones rot. So even the sin that's inside of us, that maybe you feel like others don't see, you haven't been busted, so to speak. It hasn't created a situation where you feel like you've hurt someone. Even that is working inside of you to rot and destroy. It's poison. It's toxic death. Honestly, ask yourself this. How much of your life is lived with little or no thought of God? Even that. I mean, God has a command, whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. We've, we fall helplessly short of what he, is, he deserves and what he demands. The little sins that rot and toxify your soul, anxiety, frustration, discontentment, typically discontentment, circumstances, money, possessions, health, because you're comparing to others. Unthankfulness. And Luke 17 talks about unthankfulness if you want a reading journey. Luke 18, Jesus talks about the pride of thankfulness. You can have a massive issue of rot inside your bones, inside your soul, for being thankful that you're not like others. Right? It, I, I was thinking of this earlier. How appropriate or wild is it that we're having this somber service in a mall? And you've got Vanity Fair going on, you know, the Easter Bunny. And be happy for the picture and candy and shopping and all that's out here. And in that thought, which is true, it's just the goofiness of the world on display, my heart, my heart went to Luke 18 where... In, you know, instead of feeling sadness and compassion, I felt a little bit of annoyance, like, ugh, wish we could have the beauty of quiet and nice service. My heart was, like, thankful that I'm not out there buying candy and things I don't need to impress people I don't like or whatever, that, you know, you've heard that. Or standing in line and waiting for my turn with the Easter bunny. That pride... God, thank you that I'm not like other sinners, is just as disgusting to God as the sin itself. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, says James 4. Selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, irritability, anger, judgmentalism, the sins of the tongue, gossip, foolish talk, coarse jesting, we're rife with it. And there's, it goes more. There's, little, there's an evil and sin of things that we don't do. We don't help others as we should. <laughs> we don't protect the poor, the hurting. We don't give. When help is in our hand to give it, we withhold. Because it, that help might not be used well, right? We don't share. We don't forgive as we should. We don't take action to benefit others because we're busy. We have plenty of good excuses. So it's, not, it's worse. It's not even just what we are doing, but it's what we're not doing. So to get underneath this, what is the essence? What is the nature of this sin that we're 
so full of? What was it for Satan when he fell? Lucifer, the deceiver. Isaiah 14 speaks of his fall. Let me read this. Find it here. Some haunting verses. He was a bit about himself. And I believe that's at the heart of our problem. This is Isaiah 14, 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. We read that and we affirm, yeah, that's disgusting. Probably wouldn't like to hang out with him. Probably would talk about himself a lot. But is that not behind our sin problem as well? I think so. That sense of independence instead of dependence on the good, gracious, loving God, making it all about us, seeking to take what can we get out of this versus how can we help. That taker versus giver dynamic. Remember my grandpa saying once, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's takers and there's givers. Probably an oversimplification. But Jesus was the giver, right? And we are the takers, We're consumers. He's the great giver, producer. We are like the thing in Johnny Appleseed. We could talk about Johnny Appleseed, who is a real person, by the way, right? Who spread gospel hope, spoke gospel truth, used apple seeds as a means of proliferating the Midwest with apple trees and food, but also talking about Jesus, sharing the gospel. The difference between Johnny Appleseed and maybe Johnny Applecake, who just consumes and is looking, what can I get out of the situation? Befriending people because how can they benefit me? How can they help me? Versus Johnny Appleseed, like, how can I quickly give this away? Everything he had, he gave away. Vow of poverty. It's really interesting. Sin also has not just consequences in our relationships with other people, our, our degree of ability, our capacity for joy, affecting our relationship with a holy God. But sin, uh, God designed sin in a way where even with it looking appealing and having its own sense of enticement, poison underneath, sin has a lot of ironic consequences. Think about this. Desire to control rather than bless others. A controlling manager in a work environment, like the more, the more those around you feel controlled, the less they will seek to work with you. The less they will naturally desire to catch that vision and propel it forward. They'll just do the thing because they have to. They've been controlled. There's a natural, ironic consequence to that sin of over-control. Serving not out of love, but out of gain. To take, to take. Um, to be the teacher rather than to be the learner. It's not bad to be a teacher, 
But is that a constant desire? If it is, it might be kind of a nasty thing. The ironic result is you become a fool because you're not listening. Hear the irony? Natural consequence of sin? How about looking out for yourself? Ironic result? Others don't look out for you. You don't need help because you've, you've created your own castle of self-sufficiency. Getting credit you deserve versus ensuring others get the credit. The ironic result, the more you seek credit, the less satisfying it is. Have you ever had that? Like you, you find yourself talking about, um, someone's not having a good time, by the way. Just want to recognize that. It's, it's like, pff, sorry, we are, yeah, that hurts. That's like, I would, when I hear a child cry like that, I, you know, you can kind of laugh and after you get over your, kind of like, when will it stop? Ugh. But um, that's like us before God. We're just like crying to get our way and he's like, oh, I loved you still, right? Um, yeah, the less satisfying it is, you can, you can picture that. The more you tell someone about you won or did well, you repeat that story, it just doesn't feel good anymore. It's just, it's like, ugh. And last one here, I love this example. It is awareness of self versus awareness of others. So awareness of self is a curse. And it plays itself out really nicely. I, in, um, at wedding dances, or how about prom, or junior high dance, whatever. So here's the scenario. We've all been there. There's a tension. There are people out there having a good time, and then there's you. You walk in, maybe grab some punch and some mixed nuts or whatever it is, and you chit-chat, and you're watching, you're, you're kind of tired of talking, it's been a long day of being dressed up, and the music's so loud, you can't hear what you're saying anyway, or what the other person is saying, and you just want to go out there and dance. But if you have spent a lot of energy thus far at that dance, or just in general, people watching, and that's like a source of entertainment for you, you are naturally cursed by going out there and thinking about what do others think. And you're constantly then aware and locked into that cage of inability to be free. Does that make sense? It's a natural ironic consequence of, of being um, aware of yourself, carry that out onto the dance floor, that cage goes with you and you're not free because you're so aware of yourself. All right, so sin is just nasty. It's ugly. Why is it a problem? It's rebellion against God. It's rejection of God, and it's an attempt to be God. We want to be worshipped. We want what God, we see God getting. We want that. But know this. Sin is the abominable thing that God hates. That God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. He can't look upon it. It's not of his nature. He cannot participate in it. The least transgression of God's law makes us guilty of all, of everyone. The soul that sins shall die. I'm just quoting scripture here. The wages of sin is death. God shall judge the secrets of men. There is a worm that never dies and a fire that is not quenched. The wicked shall be turned into hell and shall go away into everlasting punishment. Nothing unclean will ever enter heaven. Why all the focus on sin? Ugh. 
It's a real problem, that's why. It's humanity's biggest problem. We're a hot mess, all of us. In here, out there, globally, read the newspaper, social media, you just, oh, the pain of the dynamics between people, it's it's just ugly. That propensity to, we've talked about this, like we all are like sheep and we've gone astray. Within a body of people that love each other, you can see how fastly, how fastly, maybe vastly, but fastly is not a word. Um, you can see how quickly the toxic poison of an assumption repeated with a little slip of opinion about someone else turns into a sense of death, the stench of death. So it, sin is your biggest problem. You can, we all came in here tonight with problems. Physical pain, problems, in, maybe it's financial problems. Um, I don't need to go through all the problems, right? Like problems are on the mind. They're in our brain. But sin, like trust me, you read, you read this book, it is very clear. These words are eternal it says your biggest problem is your sin. It's the reason why Jesus had to suffer and die on the cross. It was required. Mark 10, 45 for ev- says, For even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he came not to be served as he could have, but to serve. And he came to give his life as a ransom. That means as a trade for many. That was his purpose. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. That's what we do. (laughs) When he suffered, he did not threaten. He's the lamb. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body and on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's by his wounds we've been healed. 700 years before Jesus entered this scene of world as a human in the flesh, prophet Isaiah said it with such certainty and knowledge it was in the past tense, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That's what we saw. He was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, Jesus, was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes, we're healed. We're healed. We're free. We didn't do a thing to get it. We didn't do a thing to deserve it. If you are here not getting that sense of weight that you, and if if you've never had this realization that you deserve punishment for your, the stench of your sin, it doesn't feel like good news. I encourage you to go there. Wrestle. Ask yourself the hard question about sovereignty. How is it fair that God, a good God, 
could send some to hell. How is that fair for them? What about those that have never heard? What about the Native Americans? Or you can, you can play this out. Go there. That's a really hard question. It'll force you to deal with the fact that those we all, like sheep, have gone astray. If someone is unexposed and does not have the truth, they just got what they deserved. It's not that God's unfair to punish. That's just justice. That's just fair. What's unfair is that some got life for free. He took them out of, he took them out of their, their stench of death wiped them clean as snow, and then breathed life forever. That's not fair at all. So the gospel is a super unfair thing. That's an, an invitation to each and every one of you. And this is your problem. This is not your parents' problem. This is not your brother's problem, your sister's problem, your spouse's problem. Your sin problem is your problem. Direct with the living God. So Jesus, let's look at him. He was truly born for greatness. Can you see him? Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word, the word made flesh, the baby, the son of Mary. Can you see him right now on the cross? Close your eyes if that helps. He's looking at you. Matthew 27 and Luke 23 talk, talk about this. There he is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the servant, the shepherd, the light of the world, the word made flesh, the lion, the lamb, hanging on a tree. Not a broken bone by the prophecy, but marred beyond semblance or recognition for you. And he looks at you, this Emmanuel, this God with us. He turns and looks at you, sinner in need. This great I am, this great Alpha and Omega, this great lion clothed like a lamb, silent, the giver, the redeemer, Jesus, faithful and perfect, separated by God and filled with pain. Father, where are you? The separation from you is terrible. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he says. And then he says, Father, forgive them. Insert your name there. Forgive, for they know not what they do. There's two criminals on the cross on a cross next to Jesus. The first basically says this, my problem, the sins I've committed, is now your problem. Hey, you're supposed to be God. Save us now. Get off the cross and prove you're God. That would be what a God would do. He wouldn't die. Get off the cross and prove it. Help us out of this. The second criminal, no, I'm getting what I deserved. I'm up here with you, and that's an honor because I see you are the one true God. I see my sin. I deserve this. Jesus, I get it now. You 
alone are the King Redeemer who came to die, who came to rescue. And I can see it. These earthly eyes are growing blurry. And with clarity, I can see the kingdom beyond the skies. You have a kingdom beyond this life. You open the door for me. You extend your hand to me. You are dying right now for me. Your breath is leaving for me. Please forgive me. Please remember me. And Jesus says, surely I tell you, this day, this very day, you will be with me in paradise in that kingdom. So Jesus foresaw this moment. We're going to take communion in a moment. And just as he foresaw this night as in his omniscience, you could say, in a sense, he sees all things happening at the same time. In a sense, Jesus operating outside the bounds of time. Time is a circle or a wheel. He sees the whole thing. He's on the cross, and he's seeing God the Father is seeing you through Jesus on the cross. In light of him, you are clean. Outside of that, that vision, you are dirty and, and doomed for destruction and deserving of it. But there's an offer for life as we take in communion. Jesus, and so those, if um, I could ask the um, communion servers, Dirk, Emily, um, yeah, you come up here as well. Thank you. Um, we're going to prepare for communion at a time of response. So Jesus, on Passover, celebrating the Passover with his closest friends, had no idea what was going to happen the next day, even though he'd been telling them this, right? And he says, this is my body. And they're just feasting, reclining. It's broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine and he said, this is my blood, which is given for you as a forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. He knew one of them would betray him. He washed Judas's feet. He loved on them nonetheless. He looked ahead then. He's looking ahead and is, and is seeing you now. And so as we take communion as a family, as a body together, don't take it lightly. Consider what it is and what it represents. It's a free gift that you could not have deserved. And it is the best gift you could have ever been given, Jesus. And we just remember that as we, as we take the bread um, and take the juice. Pray with me. Father, what you've done by the work of Jesus, it's beyond our ability to comprehend or appreciate it rightfully. Would you convict Would you convict us if we've taken sin lightly? We have. Would you convict us in how we we dismiss and are blind and ignore the depth of our depravity as we look at sin in the news and in history and think it's an evil that's separate from us? And we become thankful that we're not like other sinners. Please forgive us, Father. On behalf of Jesus, speak into our heart and show us where we're at with you. And if we have not handed over our lives in submission to you, I pray that 
you would quicken our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit in conviction towards the truth and the beauty of your gift. In Jesus' name, amen.